Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest, was there, and so was Sophias, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we, were, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? they asked. Everyone, know, everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have, been, have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Holy One. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your Holy Spirit, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they had shared everything they had. 
With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Eugene is uh, going to be speaking to us from Acts 4 about courage to preach. Uh, There's uh, note sheets up the back if you didn't get one when you came through. The need for courage, the picture of courage and the source of courage. Now Eugene Hoare is the lead pastor at a multilingual church called Grace Point uh, Presbyterian Church in Sydney. Uh, He's also a lecturer at the Christ Church College in um, Sydney as well Uh, and um, has a fantastic message to share with us this morning. As last week, uh, we will be cutting the last little bit off uh, the end of the video uh, just because of the application of the conference that was there was to the leaders of the the churches who were there and so we'll be cutting that last little bit off as well. So um, Ben's got that nailed for us. So let's listen to Eugene as he unpacks it for us. Friends, if you could uh, open the Bible with me to Acts chapter 4, that would be great. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4. And there is an outline as well, I think, on the Reach Australia app, if you want to download that, uh, that will be helpful for you. Courage uh, is something that everyone wants. We all want it. It's the reason why we love our heroes, uh, because they inspire us. Our kids love it, from fairy tales uh, to the great myths and legends in our respective cultures, uh, to the great stories that have captivated popular culture. Think with me for a moment, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Harry Potter series, the Avengers Marvel Universe. We esteem courage across cultures. Uh, In Chinese culture, uh, you have the legendary story of General Yu, who with 500 men faces off 100,000 invaders. Even in Greek culture, you have the legendary story of the Spartan king Leonidas, 300 Spartans, 700 Thespians, holding off 100,000 Persians at Thermopylae. In the Harry Potter series, time and time again, Harry demonstrates courage in the face of great adversity, courage to face his insecurities and fears, courage to move forward despite the death of his family. In the Lord of the Rings, time and time again, we see the hobbits, Frodo and Sam, face overwhelming odds in their journey to Mordor. We esteem courage. Our history books are filled with stories of courage, the courage of the Anzacs on the shores of Gallipoli, I came back from the Philippines recently and I read the story of the courage of Rizal who fought the Spanish colonial rule, Uh, the courage of Martin Luther King and Mandela who spoke out against injustice. We need stories of courage. Stories of courage are actually told across cultures. They are told to teach us and to inspire us and to encourage for us and to model for us what courage looks like. Now, Acts chapter 4 is no different. It's there to do just that for us as the people of God, to show us what courage looks like in the face of hostility, uh, to show us what courage looks like for the preacher of the gospel when threatened by those in power, what courage looks like for the church when the rising tide of persecution actually comes. 
Now, Acts chapter 4, if you're not aware, actually marks the start of opposition to the gospel in the life of the early church. Uh, And if you are familiar with the narrative of Acts, chapter 4 actually records the first imprisonment for the preachers of the gospel. Peter and John are actually jailed. Uh, And the book, if you have never realized this, the book also ends with another imprisonment. Paul is in chains, under house arrest, awaiting his execution in Rome. And so so it's as if the story actually begins with imprisonment and it ends with imprisonment. But the book ends with a very particular word that I want to highlight, and you're going to have to file this away. Take note of this, because the book ends, Acts chapter 28, verse 31, and it's a word that's going to be used three times in Acts chapter 4, and that's the word courage or boldness. And so Acts 28, verse 31, let me read that for us. He, Paul, proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, and here it is, with all boldness with all courage and without hindrance. Now that word, courage, paresias, file that away because we're going to come back to that in Acts chapter 4. The gospel is being proclaimed with all boldness, courage, paresias, and without hindrance. I want to look at Acts chapter 4 under three headings. Uh, The need for courage, the picture of courage, and the source of courage. The need for courage, The picture of courage, the source of courage. So here's the first one. The need for courage, verse 1 to verse 7, Acts chapter 4, if you look with me. Uh, Acts chapter 3, the public healing of the crippled man becomes the launching pad or the occasion for Peter and John to now preach. They preach a sermon on the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is why Craig read that for us. That's the content of the sermon. And it's a message that begins to stir up the authorities. Okay? So look with me, verse 1 and verse 2. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. Why? They were annoyed. They were agitated. Because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And it's understandable, because if you've actually read what Peter actually said, what Craig read for us, chapter 3, what was he declaring? He was declaring the resurrection. Chapter 3, verse 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses to this. Now, you notice what follows in chapter 3. He declares the resurrection, and what follows is a word of condemnation and a word of hope. Uh, A word of rebuke and a word of forgiveness. It condemns those who reject the risen Christ, yet it offers the possibility of repentance and having your sins wiped out. And so it's no surprise that the religious authorities are angry. They are hostile because in the gospel, Peter proclaims he condemns them for rejecting the Savior. Have a look, chapter 3, verse 13. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One. You asked that a murderer be released. You killed the author of life. You acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. So repent. Both people and leaders, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from his people. Notice how in proclaiming the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, all are called to repentance. You see it there? All Israel and her leaders who acted in ignorance. 
Now, the same thing is actually going to happen in Acts chapter 17. We're not looking at that, but in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul, as he preaches before a Gentile crowd, right, the Athenian Areopagus, he calls all the Gentiles to repentance as well. Let me read that. In the past, he overlooked their ignorance. Same word. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Remember what Mikey said yesterday? Luke chapter 24. The call for the gospel workers is not just to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. It's also to call people to repentance. You cannot hold out and preach the gospel each week without calling for repentance. You cannot hold out Christ before people without calling them to the Lord Jesus in repentance. You know, the first of Luther's 95 Theses, I didn't have this in my notes, and then I heard Mikey preach calling for repentance, and I thought, oh, look, most people know that Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg. Most people have never read the 95 Theses. Do you know what the first one says? No church history people here. The first thesis reads, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You cannot preach the resurrection if you're not calling people to repentance. Now come back to Acts chapter 4, because here in Acts chapter 4, what follows is a scene that we've seen played out before. It's a scene reminiscent of the trial of Jesus. Right? Just as they seized Jesus and held him overnight, Luke 22, we read verse 3, the same of Peter and John. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. And like Jesus, Luke 22, Peter and John are brought before the very same council that tried and judged and condemned Jesus. Verse 5, the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law, they met in Jerusalem. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? And it's a scene we've seen before in Luke's gospel, right? The one they have just proclaimed has stood where they are now standing, before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the 71-member court of the most powerful religious leaders, the very same powerful council that tried and unjustly condemned Jesus, you will not find friends of the gospel here. Now, it is a very intimidating scene uh, because we all know the possibility of death was real. And it does look like history is going to repeat itself. Will Peter and John suffer the same fate? Are they going to be handed over to the Romans to be executed? And... You and I know what happened to Peter the last time he was in this situation. Remember, he followed Jesus. He boldly declared, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Luke 22. Well, he wasn't ready to go with Jesus to prison. He wasn't ready to die. In fact, what does he do? He denied Jesus three times. And so will Peter and John stand firm? Will they cave in? Will they bow to the powerful? Will they recant? Will there be another, de will there be another denial? In response to the preaching of the gospel, they're seized, they're imprisoned, and they're brought to trial before a powerful court that we all know has not and will not predispose to the gospel. And so you notice in verse 1 to verse 7, there's a clear need for courage. Now, I want to say to you, as gospel workers, 
most of you, if not all of you, will never find yourself in a situation where you will be seized, incarcerated, and brought to trial before a powerful court that will not be predisposed to the gospel you proclaim. So I suspect most of us will never find ourselves in that situation, but I can assure you that you'll find yourself in situations where you will need courage to keep proclaiming the gospel, to keep your hands on the plow in Christian ministry, to keep moving forward. You'll need courage to face suffering when tragedy comes into your life and family. You will need courage to face disappointment that ministry will bring at some point. You will need courage to deal with loneliness from making decisions in ministry. You will need courage to face personal rejection from people you have invested in and loved for years when they reject you. You will need courage to face intimidation from those who have the power of influence over your ministry. Friends, there will always be a need for courage, if not now, at some point in your Christian life and ministry. Verse 8 to verse 22, notice what follows. You have the need for courage, but now you have a picture of courage. Okay? Here is what courage looks like in verse 8 to verse 22. And the courage of the apostles can be seen in three things, right? Peter speaks of, uh, demonstrates courage, and you'll see three things. Uh, you'll see defense, declaration, and defiance, right? Defense, declaration, defiance. You see appointed defense, exclusive declaration, and you see godly defiance. Okay? So here's the first one, verse 8 to verse 11. There is appointed defense. By what power or name did you do this? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is a stone you rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now notice, Peter does not defend himself, does he? He doesn't avoid the question, right? He doesn't sidestep the question. He's not concerned with his own personal safety or reputation, and he is certainly not unaware of the gravity of the situation. Now this is not a normal defense, because he does two things. Firstly, notice with me, he uses it as an opportunity to point to the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see there? Even under trial, what's he doing? He's making the gospel known. He's proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But notice the second thing. The one who is being judged is executing judgment over those who will judge him. Rulers and elders of Israel know this, you and all the people it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And so you'll notice with me, even under trial, he points to the resurrection of Jesus, he points to their rejection of Jesus, and he calls them to repentance. They need to repent. Now Peter's response is no different to what he's previously proclaimed in chapter 3. Chapter 3, 13 to 23, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. You and your leaders acted in ignorance. Repent, turn to God so your sins may be wiped out. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. It's a point of defense. 
Because even on the trial, he points to the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, and the need for his hearers to repent of their rejection of Jesus. But there's a second thing. Notice as well in the face of hostility, he moves from pointed defense to exclusive declaration. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so before a powerful, intimidating judiciary, he makes a declaration that would have been sure to offend. If it isn't enough that he condemns them and calls them to repentance, he now says, you need saving. They need saving. They need Jesus, who is the only Savior, the one they've rejected and, and executed. And so one crippled man's healing right, becomes a small picture of salvation offered and now available to all in the Lord Jesus. And so he moves from defense to declaration. There is really nothing nuanced in his declaration. There's no attempt to sugarcoat this declaration. There's no attempt to apologize for making this declaration. And this is what courage in the gospel worker looks like. Declaring the exclusiveness of the gospel that Jesus Christ alone saves. And it's actually a declaration that disrupts, that threatens, certainly in a culture that esteems pluralism and conformity. It certainly did that in the early church. Sociologist Rodney Clark, Stark, Stark sorry, writes of the first century Roman world, uh, and in his book he writes that, let me read that for us, too often uh, historians have ignored the sincerity of pagans, that is unbelievers, misreading their casual forms of worship, which is religious pluralism. They mistake that or they misread that for indifference. He says large numbers of Romans, especially those making up the politically elite, sincerely believed that the gods had made Rome the great empire it had become. Well, this is what happens. The exclusiveness of the gospel that Christ alone saved disrupts and threatens that. I read an uh, article recently by Paul Hartog, a scholar, a scholar who wrote on the maltreatment of uh, Christians in the early church. And he writes, In the average Roman mind, the traditional religious rituals were of essence of what it meant to be a good Roman citizen. And so the whole empire, he says, was sustained and nourished by a system of delicate social structures and religious practices. Then along come the Christians. Thus, Christians endangered the Pax Deodorum, right? the peace of the gods. Why? Because they did not honor the Roman gods in their plurality. In the eyes of Rome, the Christian abandonment of the gods imperiled, threatened all in society by risking divine wrath and misfortune. And this is why the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that Christ alone saves, will always be a disruption and a threat wherever it is proclaimed, in every culture, in every nation, both within the church and in culture and society. It was true then and it remains true today because it says to totalitarian states, it says to political power, you are not the saviour, Christ is. It says to religious people, your good works and your morality cannot save you. It says to all other religions and claim truths, your beliefs cannot save you, only Christ can. It says to secular people, people self-fulfillment cannot save you. It says to those concerned with justice and mercy, 
feeding the poor does not save. Only Christ can. It says to those concerned with creation care, solving our environmental issues will not save. Only Christ can. And it says to Rome, your gods cannot save you. Caesar cannot save you. Only Christ can. Friends, I also want you to see that while the declaration is incredibly exclusive, it is far more inclusive in its breadth. This is what makes the gospel good news. It is for all people. Look with me again at verse 12. For there is no other name given to mankind, given, notice, delivered, bestowed like a gift, granted to all people by which we must be saved. Salvation is offered to all in the gospel. Right? It's made available to all people. Luke 24, verse 47, it's meant to be for all nations. Sometimes, in declaring the exclusiveness of the gospel, we forget to also highlight its inclusiveness. Salvation is made available to all through the risen Christ. In fact, the exclusive nature of the gospel right, is far more inclusive than any other religious worldview. It's far more inclusive even more than secularism. Let me tell you why. Religion and secularism as a worldview is actually far more narrow and far more exclusive than the gospel preached. Why? Because religion actually says to the morals, the law-keeping, the good, it says only to them, it says they deserve to be saved. Only the moral, the law-keeping, the good deserve to be saved. And so whatever people make of uh, salvation, and in our culture... Uh, in our plurality of beliefs, people think many things about salvation, certainly the religious. And so it could be release from the cycle of rebirth, it could be enlightenment, it could be heaven, it could be forgiveness. And so in Hinduism, you must walk the path of duty, knowledge, and devotion to the gods to be saved. Only then will you be released from the cycle of birth and rebirth, if you can do it. In Buddhism, you must hold on to the Four Noble Truths, you must live out the Eightfold Path, and then you find release from your suffering and enlightenment but only if you can do it. Uh, in Judaism, you must keep the Torah, the law. In Islam, you must keep the five pillars and you get heaven, but only if you can do it. And, and so you notice, right, religion operates on the principle of what? Salvation by works. And that only privileges, it only rewards the strong, the good, the moral, the disciplined. Only those who are able to achieve and meet the demands of religion are saved. So what if you're not strong? What if you're not able to do what's asked of you? What if you're not good enough? What if you can't meet the moral expectations of religion? What if you haven't enough willpower to be disciplined? Well, religion's answer is work harder to be good. Work to be more moral. Work to be more disciplined. And so religion is pretty narrow and exclusive, don't you think? But secularism in our culture is no different is just as narrow, is just as ex exclusive when it comes to salvation. You know, do secular people believe in salvation? Of course they do. Functionally, everyone believes in salvation. We just use different terms. Let me explain. Uh, in an article exploring uh, the novels of the English novelist E.M. Foster, John Colmer writes this. A whole set of religious terms... Salvation, grace, conversion, transfiguration have become assimilated into an essentially secular vision. Men and women now seek their happiness on this earth, not in heaven. They have developed a religious veneration of life as we know it. Where men and women no longer find their true ground of their being in God, 
they now look for it in the personal, in the self. Consequently, their ideals become self-realization, self-fulfillment, or just sheer getting on or through something in life. Now, what does that mean? It means both religious and secular people are looking for salvation. The religious looks to find salvation in God. The secular looks to find salvation in self-realization or self-fulfillment, in their work perhaps, in their relationships perhaps, in their accomplishments perhaps, in their ambitions, or simply in salvation in getting through something in life, salvation from personal suffering, salvation from poverty. In short, functionally, everyone is looking for salvation or redemption of sorts. And the secular actually says, you can save yourself by your own effort, by your own intellect, by your own hard work, if you're strong enough, if you're smart enough, if you're resourceful enough. Secularism says, obviously, there's no God. We live in a closed universe. Nature is all there is. And so you must save yourself. It's the logical conclusion. And so secularism says, salvation only belongs to who? The strong, the smart, the resourceful. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and the bigger dog deserves to survive. Save yourself. You have to be the bigger dog in the workplace, in your relationships, in your studies. You know, that's actually the principle of natural selection in nature at work. Evolution is weeding out those who deserve to be saved and those who don't deserve to be saved. Secularism only favors those who are strong, who are smart and resourceful. Nature does not favor the weak and the slow. You know, in response to why bad things happen, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins says, it's either bad luck or bad genes. It's evolution at work. And so the weak and the slow actually have no place in secularism. Secularism lived out functionally is built on salvation by works which favors only the strong, the smart, the resourceful. But what if you're not strong? What if you're not smart? What if you aren't resourceful enough? What if you're slow and weak? What if you're struggling? Well, secularism's answer is try harder. Work harder to be smarter. Work to be better. Work to be stronger. Secularism is pretty narrow and exclusive, don't you think? But notice the gospel. The gospel of the risen Christ as the only way of salvation, the gospel as an exclusive declaration is far more inclusive, far more inclusive than religion and secularism. Peter, notice what he says, verse 12, Jesus Christ, the one who saves, the name that saves, has been given, delivered, bestowed, granted to all people. It's not something you have to earn. It's not something you work for. It's not secured by your morality or your good works. It's not obtained by being strong. In fact, the exclusive nature of the gospel that Christ alone saved means you don't have to be strong. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be moral enough. You don't have to be strong, smart, or resourceful enough. It says the weak, the slow, the undeserved, bad, the guilty, all people can be saved. Why? Because the gospel operates on the principle of grace. Grace, a welcome from the Father. Grace, forgiveness, full and free. Grace that's greater than our failings. Grace has come, it's been given, and it's awaiting in the gospel of the risen Christ. I think it's the best news ever. And all people have to do is repent and receive the Savior. 
before a hostile judiciary, Peter makes pointed defense to the gospel, exclusive declaration to the gospel. Now we do read verse 13, if you look with me, when they saw the courage or boldness, and that word has now come up, when they saw the courage and boldness, the parousias of Peter and John, and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now that word, courage, parousia, is a loaded word in antiquity. Because parousia was actually the ancient Greek practice of courageous truth-telling before the powerful. It's a loaded word. Foucault, in his lectures on the courage of truth, right, a series of lectures he gave uh, in 1983, he writes, Parasia as a practice is the courage of speaking the truth to a friend, to a tyrant, to a king, before the government of a city. The courage of speaking truth to those in power and the courage of speaking the truth is done at the risk of rejection, shame, exile, imprisonment, and death. And so parasia, courage takes place when truth and courage actually meet. It's got to be both truth and courage. And so parasia, courage and boldness in speaking the truth, is supposed to actually be a dangerous thing because it both disrupts and threatens, doesn't it? It exposes, it exposes the one whom you speak to, to tyrant, to king, to those in power and authority, to government, to a culture, to a society, to a city, to a believer, to an unbeliever, is dangerous. Why? Because it necessitates a response. It calls for change. The truth it speaks demands a response. And so it's dangerous for both the hearer, the city, but it's also dangerous for the one who speaks courage and boldness in speaking the truth before all. Now notice the courage and boldness, the parasia of Peter and John is seen in what they declared, in what they spoke. Friends, notice courage and boldness for the gospel worker is bound up in speaking the truth about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's bound up in calling for repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. It's bound up in declaring the good news that salvation is for all. It's tied in with that truth. Friends, can I say to you, don't forget that we are in the ministry, we are in the business of declaring the truth of the gospel. Do you know courage to speak the truth about the death and resurrection of Jesus is not the same as courage to speak out on environmental issues, even though it's important. Courage to call people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus is not the same as courage to speak out on gender issues, even though that's important. Courage to declare that salvation is through Christ alone is not the same as courage to speak out on issues of justice and mercy, even though that's important. Parasia, courage to speak the truth in Acts, is with specific reference to salvation made available in the risen Christ. You know, speaking with courage and boldness uh, on the most pressing cultural issues we face is really not the same as courage and boldness in speaking the truth of the gospel. God is not going to save. Can I say this? God is not going to save because we win our religious freedoms. You've got to hear that one. God is not going to save. We are not going to reach Australia because we have religious freedoms. Not because the law will protect our people's right to express their beliefs. God is going to save through the gospel worker with courage and boldness speaking the truth of the gospel. The gospel defended, the gospel declared, even in the face of hostility and lack of freedom. 
You know, the Chinese church in mainland China has lived under the cloud of religious persecution with hardly any freedom for over 70 years, and it has not stopped the growth of the gospel. Yang Feng Gang is a scholar of religion at Purdue University in Indiana. He puts the Protestant numbers in 2018 at 100 million, and it's based on what they believe has been 7% 7% annual growth between 1949 and 2010. The 7%, that's what Herdy was asking for last night. Do you really think that losing your religious freedoms will stop the growth of the gospel? You see, what we need is men and women who will speak with courage and boldness the gospel in the face of hostility. And I want to say this, if our people in our churches, if they have not got the courage to defend and declare the truth of the gospel when they're free, I can tell you this, they will not do it when they lose their freedoms. You know, in the church, on social media, I hear people concerned that they'll lose their religious freedoms. And so, for many people, the most pressing issue is to fight to maintain our religious freedoms. And I think that's important. But if our people have never used their religious freedom to courageously speak the truth of the gospel when they're free, they'll never do it when they lose their freedoms. Wang Mingdao was one of the leaders of the Chinese church. He was in prison from 1963 to 1980, 17 years in prison. He was arrested and he was in prison in the mid-50s as well, so over 25 years in prison. His wife, Deborah, was also in prison at the same time for about 12 years. All up, he spent about 23, 25 years of his life in prison. He was released in 1980. He was an 80-year-old man. International pressure finally actually led to his release. He was frail. He was nearly blind. He was partially deaf because of his years in prison. When he was released, visitors, Amnesty International, they would come, Christian unbelievers too would come, Christians and unbelievers, they came. They visited him from Asia, Europe, North America, and they would visit him in this little apartment that he lived in in Shanghai, and, and, and whenever guests came, he would always invite his guests, his visitors, to sing with him. And he would sing loudly hymns. And he could be heard outside. And his visitors, right, they came and they would be nervous. Because this is China in the early 80s. He was constantly being watched and monitored by the security officers. Now, Wang Mingdao's response was always the same. I sang With joy when I was in prison, I sing all the more now that I'm free. I sang with joy while I was in prison. I sing all the more now that I'm free. He was fearless in defending and speaking the gospel in prison, and he was just as fearless in speaking and defending the gospel and declaring the gospel when released. And so with courage, he would, he would sing of his Savior. He would proclaim his Savior when beaten and deprived of food and human contact. With just as much courage, he would do it when he was free. Friends, if our people have not got the courage to defend and declare the truth of the gospel when they're free, I can assure you they will not do it when they lose their freedoms. But there's a third thing in our picture of courage, a godly defiance. There's pointed defense, exclusive declaration, and there's godly defiance. You find it verse 14 and verse 22. Peter and John notice they're warned to speak no longer of anyone in the name of Jesus. They commanded them, verse 17, verse 18, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They commanded to stop proclaiming the risen Christ. 
Verse 19, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to Kim? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now again, that's paresia, that's courage. That's boldness to keep proclaiming the gospel. That's courage to keep speaking the truth. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot help speaking the truth of the risen Christ. You see, being willing to speak the gospel is an issue of obedience. It's an issue of obedience to God. Right? Luke 24, Acts 1, we heard yesterday. Jesus said, You are witnesses to my death and resurrection and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. You are my witnesses. When it comes to speaking the truth of the gospel, staying silent has never been part of God's economy or plan for us and for our people. You know, the Puritan John Bunyan, he was jailed in 1658. He spent about 12 years of his life in prison. Uh, he could have known freedom at any time. The, the local magistrate was willing to free him if he promised to stop preaching. He told the local magistrate he would rather remain in prison until moss grew over his eyes than fail to do what God commanded him, to preach the gospel. But even in prison, Bunyan was a funny man. He preached in the jail courtyard, and people we read from all around Bedford would come and stand outside the walls of the prison to hear him preach. <laughs> and so what the authorities did was they, to silence him, they then placed him in a cell deep within the walls of the prison. And that's when John Bunyan actually started writing. And that's when John Bunyan pr uh, preached his loudest, really, in prison, he penned The Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you have read that to your children. This great Christian classic on the Christian life that has brought the gospel really to generations of men and women around the world. Do you know for 300 years that followed Bunyan, that book, The Pilgrim's Progress, was the most widely read and translated book in the world after the Bible. That's godly defiance. Here is a picture of courage. A pointed defense to the gospel an exclusive declaration of the gospel, and a godly defiance to keep making the gospel known. That's courage. But Acts 4 also gives us the source of courage. Phil's going to talk uh, more about that, I suspect, tomorrow on prayer. Where do we find power to be bold? Where does the gospel find power uh, to defy, defend, and declare the gospel? Well, it's found in prayerful dependence. Verse 23, verse 31. Notice verse 23, we read that Peter and John, they go back to the community of believers, reporting the hostility, the threat, the ban, and this is the immediate reaction of the church. You, you think that the church right, would have been overwhelmed with a sense of despair. You think they would make plans to now protect themselves. You don't see them falling to despair. Notice what happens, verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together and prayed to God, the sovereign Lord. God is sovereign Lord. He's a ruler of unmatched, unchallenged power. You know, the powerful judiciary they've just spoken to that has prohibited them from preaching the gospel, well, they too are subject to a much higher power and authority. In fact, the rule of man cannot overturn the, the rule of God. The threats of man cannot unhinge the great purposes of God to save in his risen king. And so this is the source of their courage. Sovereign Lord, verse 24. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2, the scriptures 
become the basis of the prayer of the church. It's a reminder to them that God has established the saving rule of His Son. Verse 27, they, the powerful, the authorities, the kings, the governors, they have conspired against Him. They have banded together against Him. But we know, verse 28, what do we know? By God's power and will, he has established the saving rule of his son. They crucified him, but God raised him to life. It's an act of futility. The gospel of the risen Christ has and it will prevail. People will be saved. This is where the church must look to find its courage in darkness. This is where the gospel worker must look to find courage to defend, to declare, and to defy, to make the gospel known. The right side of history actually lies with the saving rule of the risen Christ. Remember that. And the request for courage now comes in verse 29. And again we meet that same word, parasia, courage and boldness in speaking the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 29 with me. Now, Lord, consider their threats, their hostility, their intimidation, and enable your servants to speak your word with great courage, with great boldness, with great parasias to speak the truth. The parasias, the courage we've seen in Peter and John, the church now asks for courage to defend, courage to declare, courage to defy, to make the gospel known. They ask for the same thing. And notice, they're not praying that the hostility or threats might stop. They're not praying for religious freedom, even though that's important. Their biggest need is not personal safety, it's not personal comfort. Their biggest need is boldness or courage to defend, declare, and defy to make the gospel known. And it's not just boldness they ask for, because notice what else they ask for in verse 30. They also ask that people might be saved. They pray that people might be saved. Verse 30, stretch out your hands to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant. Because remember, the healing of the crippled man in chapter 3 was the occasion for the preaching of the gospel. And we know what happened when the gospel was proclaimed. Chapter 4, verse 4. As the gospel was proclaimed, many who heard the message believed, so the number of men and women who believed grew to about 5,000. That's what they're praying for. Courage and boldness. Parasia to speak the truth of the gospel. Courage to defend, declare, and defy to make the truth of the gospel known so that people might be saved. That's their prayer. And so for the third time, we meet the word parasia. Courage, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with courage, with boldness, parasias. They spoke the gospel with courage. The place trembled, but they were not trembling. The place was shaken, but they were unshakable. Can you see the source of courage for the church? Prayerful dependence on the God who has established the saving rule of His Son to save in the preaching of the gospel. And that's the reason why the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts ends with the same word, all courage without hindrance in the preaching of the gospel. Parasias akolutos, Acts 28 verse 31. He, Paul, proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all courage and without hindrance. The gospel is being proclaimed with all boldness and all courage without hindrance. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to the nations. It's being preached in his name to all nations. It's gone out to the ends of the earth. 
Courage comes by prayerful dependence on the God who has established the saving rule of his Son in the preaching of the Gospel. Prayerful dependence is the source of our courage. Uh, As a church, we need to be prayerfully dependent on God, that we will have courage to be able to speak the truth and love, to defend, declare and defy in Alston, in our workplace, uh, in our community, so that we can make the gospel known and that people might be saved.